This podcast may contain explicit language and feel free to use explicit language when you review the gist on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. It's Monday, March 18th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A few months ago, Donald Trump went down to El Paso to deliver some lies, not lines, lies, about the situation at the border. And Beto O'Rourke answered with a counter rally. Well, it works so well. Now he's rallying around counters. We are back with our 2020 lead and former Congressman Beto O'Rourke is in. And he's so excited that he's running for president that he jumped on top of a coffee shop counter this afternoon to take questions from voters in the key early state of Iowa. O'Rourke has been an official Democratic candidate for less than 12 hours. Meanwhile, Beto O'Rourke made it official. He got in the race. Yep. He's been on lunch counters standing there all across <laughs> Iowa. He's jumping on counters. He's moving his arms. He's doing like cool things. Visiting Iowa for the first time ever today, the crowd so big inside this coffee shop, he took his message to the countertop. Jake Tapper and much of the rest of the news media noting that there is no flat surface in the state of Iowa, a land of mostly flat surfaces, that Beto hasn't perched atop, stood upon, or climbed aboard. He's mounted countertops in Muscatine and ascended tables in Mount Pleasant. Trump questioned Obama's birth certificate, Beto's tour, will prompt the president to investigate every Iowa coffee shop's cabaret license. If it's ever supported a scone or a croissant, chances are that Beto has stood on it. There are so many Iowa counters that have borne aloft both multiple brand muffins and a three-term U.S. congressman. Now, Barack Obama, he often spoke of the idea of standing on the shoulders of those activists who integrated lunch counters, whereas Beto speaks while standing on the lunch counters themselves. This is a guy who hasn't truly articulated all of his stances, unless it's his stance on standing, and he's going to do it, if it's a piece of restaurant furniture, I literally think, I literally think, I'm not kidding, that it plays well in Iowa. It communicates, I will stand up for you. And Iowa's a pretty literal place. Case in point, the greatest quarterback in Iowa Hawkeye history is a guy named Chuck Long. Chuck Long, quarterback. They throw a football, you see. I imagine SNL doing a skit where Beto climbs aboard one lunch counter and then he has to face a challenging remark from Kamala Harris or Cory Booker. So what does he do? He climbs to an even higher lunch counter. And then maybe he's challenged by Biden or Sanders. So what does he do? He keeps climbing to maybe the top shelf where they keep the evaporated milk that supposedly doesn't go bad. And all the while lecturing the field on the value of taking the high ground. Or Elizabeth Warren could start talking about when she was growing up in Oklahoma, how she and her family would work out the family budget on the kitchen table. And boom, Beto shows up and he stands on the table. He'll put forth a glorious campaign video with him standing on famous tables in history, standing on the map in the Situation Room when Osama bin Laden was killed, facing the Viet Cong across the Paris negotiating table by standing on it. And it all ends with a shot of Beto. We pull back and we find out he's on. On Mount Rushmore. No, I don't mean his face is up on Mount Rushmore. I mean, he's literally standing on Teddy Roosevelt's head on Mount Rushmore, talking about his belief in the American dream. Most candidates vow not to let you down. You just worry that Beto will be able to get himself down from those many Iowa countertops. I do not know if he's the man to beat the Democratic field or Trump. I do know that if this election is a referendum on the economy, leadership, and parkour, Beto O'Rourke is our man. On the show today, why yearning 
for New Zealand's straightforward response to gun laws is a tempting trap. That is the spiel. But first, the man who stared Tucker Carlson down and said, you're kind of a hypocritic, squirrely little fellow, aren't you? Dutch historian and writer on economic policy, Rutger Bregman is here, and you won't have to wait for his people to release this tape. It is up next on The Gist. Rutger Bregman, you may have seen or heard of him. He's the historian who was invited to Davos and told the billionaires, you know, you might consider paying more taxes. And then he went on the Tucker Carlson show and said something akin to, you know, you're not really part of the solution. (laughs) Well, when I said went on the Tucker Carlson show, they didn't let him on. But luckily, he made a recording of it and it got out there. He's also a writer mostly on economic issues. He writes for Dare Correspondent, which is an online journal whose translation in English means the people who converse back and forth. He is also the author of Utopia for Realists, part of the, I don't know, oxymoron series. Hello. Hello, Rutger. How are you? I'm good. It's great to be with you. How? We're, we're expanding into yeah. uh, into English, actually, with the correspondence. I was September, hoping you so would. It seemed uh, really good and yeah. really vital. Let's just get to a number of issues. But before we do, I want to ask you about yourself. You are not an economist. You are an historian, correct? Mm -hmm. But you have a knowledge of economics and you write about economic history. Yeah. Do you come from a family of economists or historians? No, not at all. My father is a preacher and my mother is a teacher. Did that help your communication skills? I think so, maybe. Uh, Or at least my uh, sometimes uh, feeling of injustice. (laughs) Yeah. That you want to do something to improve the world, right? And that you believe that people need something bigger than just their, you know, their individual obsessions, but something to fight for and join a movement. I I guess I got that from my father. Uh, And were you raised in the tradition of, let's go do this to change the world for the better Christianity, or don't do those bad things to damn yourself to hell Christianity? (laughs) The former, luckily. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a big question. So tell me, in the Netherlands, what forms of, I mean, is, do they have a lot of fire and brimstone uh, admonishment to Christianity? Of course. I mean, it's a country like any other. (laughs) Well, it's not like, I mean, we have very different countries and very different traditions. That's true. You know? That's true. And if someone in the United States were raised, say, a Baptist, there'd be an eighty-something percent chance that you know the economics that they would, yeah. that they would favor, would Very be true, of a yeah. certain ilk. Yeah. And that doesn't exist in the Netherlands, right? So yeah. conservative Christians in Holland love universal health care, love public education, just as the Tories in the UK and just as conservatives in Canada love universal health care as well. I mean, America really is the exception here, right? Yeah. So how much do you think our economic ideas or ideas about what uh, what the economy can do for us, how much are they tied up to religion or culture? Well, very much so. Very, very much so. I think that since the 1980s, we've been inventing, inventing more and more jobs that don't really need to exist. That's not, uh, that's not an economic law. It's an ideology. We've this obsessive ideology that's all about work, work, work. And then when the technology comes in and more and more work gets automated... Yeah, we just start inventing jobs that don't need to exist. I mean, there's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with wanting to contribute to your country. But when work becomes an ideology that you just start inventing jobs that don't need to exist, something goes wrong. And, and I mean, there's a lot to be done, right? We've got huge challenges that lie ahead. Climate change, one of them. Uh, but also, you know, caring for our kids, caring for the elderly. We should count that as work. Mm-hmm. We should include that in GDP. And we should pay people for it way more than we do now. Right. So 
if it is true that we've invented all these jobs that don't need to exist, then how do you look at automation that's being brought by Tesla, Amazon, or these companies that are really good at what they're doing, but they are putting people out of work? Yeah. Also, I don't know how aligned you are with the unions, but you know the unions are against automation. So mm-hmm. I understand for them it's a fight for survival and they're living in the real world yeah. now. But do you view a senator like Sherrod Brown? I don't know how much you know about him, but he's he's he fights for workers who are in plants that either were closed yesterday or going to get closed tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And he's he's a Democrat and a pretty liberal Democrat, but he's very pro-tariff. So do you see him and people like him as part of, you know, broadly speaking, your coalition? Well, it depends on the specific factory. So if people are fighting for, I don't know, coal plants to, to you know. He's talking to most about cars and not, and not electric cars. That's a big one in yeah, these districts. Yeah. This is an issue with the old left. Right, that they're trying to preserve a status quo or that they want to go back to the 70s or something like that. I think we should look forward to the future. I think that automation is a wonderful thing. So the day your jobs get automated should be the best day in your life. It's just that we live in a system right now where it often is the worst day in your life, right? Because we do not have implemented things like universal basic income or proper public services or educational programs that help people to get on with their lives. But there's, I mean, automation should be a wonderful thing. But then again, I mean, there are old ideas that you can also revive. I mean, this is what the the Green New Deal is all about. You know, it's just taking an old idea and and reinventing it for for a new Well, rebranding it. I mean... You're a historian. Mm-hmm. This is often said. I'm glad you brought that up. With the Green New Deal, a justification is if we didn't dare to dream big and do the impossible, we wouldn't have. And the two big examples they use are the space program mm-hmm. and the Green New Deal. I've looked at the space program a lot. I find that that statement is not true. They surveyed the best minds in the field. They asked what's possible and what's not possible. But I think I think it's pretty much the case with the New Deal in America. I think when Roosevelt proposed it, almost all of the experts said, well, this could work. And I don't know mm-hmm. that that's true with the Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. I think that if you zoom out a little bit and just look at innovation in general in America and the rest of the world, what you'll find is that almost all breakthrough innovations are have been funded by government. My favorite example is the iPhone. So every sliver of innovation in the iPhone uh, whether you talk about uh, the battery or the touchscreen or mobile technology, the internet, everything that makes it a smartphone instead of a stupid phone, um, it was all invented by researchers on the government payroll. So what I want to do, what I would like is to live in a society where indeed we have a bold government you know, that comes up with these these fascinating and interesting proposals and ideas, then all these wonderful innovations come out of it. And sure, corporations can use those innovations like Apple to make wonderful products like an iPhone, but then please pay your taxes over it so that we can fund the next wave of of revolutions, you know, the next wave of innovation. And that's the issue here, is that people just don't know it. They use the iPhone and think, oh, Steve Jobs has given it to us. No, Uncle Sam has given it to you, right? The government has done it all. Yeah, the internet was part of a, a government-funded program. Exactly. But people are turning against the internet these days. <laughs> Maybe yeah. they're going to blame the government <laughs> yeah. on that. Um, let's talk about a specific proposal. In Davos, you took it to the billionaires and said, you've got to raise taxes. Mm-hmm. I agree. But the the number that attached itself to that idea, at least in America, was 70%. Mm-hmm. And I will say, 
and I could tell you why. I just think that's too high. Do you think a 70% tax rate, federal tax rate, is too high? It depends. So that's right. AOC's proposal was for the really rich, right? $10 million people, or more. Yeah, and yep. that sounds like a very sensible idea. Not to me, it doesn't, right? and I'll tell you why. In California, they have the highest tax rate at those levels of 13%. And I do think when you get to 83%, you will just disincentivize work. And I think you'll also incentivize tons of tax avoidance. Mm-hmm. So if you don't pass it with ways to get around the tax avoidance, you know, the examples I use is yeah. The Rock has made his $10 million doing his movies. Yeah. Then he's offered a, a $10 million movie deal that maybe he doesn't want to do. But once he does his taxes, it's now worth $1.4 million. He says no. And maybe mm-hmm. the movie's going to suck and I don't care about Towering Inferno, huh. but maybe it's going to be a fine movie and maybe it's going to have a lot of economic benefit yeah. down the line. So well, I call, think, call me crazy, yeah. but I believe there's something called intrinsic motivation and that there are some people out there who do something because they actually want to do it, right? right? right. Because they care about creating something that is interesting right. and that if you earn more than $10 million a year, that at some point it's just enough. So you have to... Um, uh, remember that a top marginal tax rate that high would basically function as a maximum salary, right? Mm-hmm. Because it would just be pointless to keep on giving people That's what higher I'm saying. salaries, etc. Right, right. And this is exactly how it functioned in the 50s and the 60s, is that these crazy salaries were just not being given to, to employees, and they used that money just to give yeah. it to the middle. I think actually it's a it's a relatively moderate proposal. It's 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 also less important than the wealth tax, for example, that Elizabeth Warren has proposed, right. which will Agreed. raise a lot more in revenue. Because this uh, is where this is where wealthy people really have money. Exactly. Yeah. Not, exactly. That's going to make a difference, right? Has that worked around the world? Sure. Sure. Where? Uh, Switzerland, for example, has a quite substantial wealth tax that, that works very well. Uh, there are many examples in the post-war world where you know that that was really confiscatory levels of taxations that happened, uh, um, you know, during wartime or after that. Uh, people just have a bad memory. <laughs> they think, oh, this is this can never work. This can never happen. I mean, one experience is obviously is that. I'm from Holland. You can't always say, oh, we've got this in Holland. That doesn't work in America, right? You always got to tie it to American history. Okay, so let me give you some examples. Breaking up companies, uh, 1911, uh, uh, breaking up standard oil. It's just a standard thing what you do when capitalism doesn't work anymore, when you get these huge monopolies. Uh, Higher uh, levels of taxations, indeed, in the 50s, you had it. Um, Guaranteed basic income. It almost happened in the United States at the end of the 60s. You know, it was almost implemented by Richard Nixon, actually, of all people. So people often think, oh, this is never going to happen. By today's standards on economics and the environment. So what would the guaranteed income be? Uh, What's a good one? Where do we start? Where where do we start? Well, it's a very simple idea. You would just completely eradicate poverty by just. Uh, topping up the income of everyone as soon as they fall below the poverty line. Okay, so it wouldn't be one amount for everyone. It would be where they are and give them enough to get over the poverty line. I think that is probably the best way forward in the short term. So I'm all in favor of a universal basic income in the long long run, but I think the easiest way to administer it right now is through a so-called negative income tax. And you could easily eradicate poverty with that. There's actually a wonderful experiment uh, that started in North Carolina in the early 90s. Uh, there was a casino that started there, operated by the Eastern Men of Cherokee Indians. And they used all the, the earnings of the casino just to give it to the, the members of the band themselves. And this is a very uh, rich study because they've got 20 years worth of data. And what they found actually is that... Um, the reductions in, in healthcare costs went down, crime went down, kids did much better in school. All those savings were bigger than the cash grants themselves. So 
in the long run, this was literally free money. Yeah. It was an investment that paid for itself. Yeah. And then, and then the follow-up studies show that when you look at their literacy rates and look at their health outcomes, just tremendously better than before exactly. and better to similar yeah. populations, similar yeah. counties yeah. that didn't get the money. And this is an argument that people on the left should make much, much more. Because so often when we talk about poverty, we say, oh, this is immoral. We should help these people, et cetera. Uh-huh. And sure, there's a part of the population that, that is receptive to that kind of language. They're probably already in your camp. Uh, but it is, exactly. Yeah. And th- it's there's also a pragmatic case to be made for this. If you don't have a heart, you still have a wallet. Mm-hmm. And the welfare state and capitalism, you know, they can work together. Uh, yeah. If a, a guaranteed basic income, I see it as venture capital for the people. Uh, everyone can start a new company. I think- everyone can find a, find a new job, move on to something diff- different. You know, it will create a lot of dynamism in the economy. I think we have to think of a better label than negative income tax. That yeah. has two yeah. bad words in it. Can you explain that to me? Why do Americans on the left feel the need to call themselves socialists all the time? Right? Yeah. I mean, I would consider myself sort of technically on the left or progressive, yeah. but I would never call myself a socialist because that would associate me with, say, the Soviet Union. And yeah. I'm and, and not Nazis, really a fan of that. Maybe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I would more like call myself a realist or, you know, use the language of common sense or, right. you know, progressive maybe. But where where does this I need think, come from I to think, flirt with, with yeah. communism? I think where it comes from is because Kurt Vonnegut used to say it and Bernie used to say it, and it was a real way to differentiate yourself from the Democratic Party. And my theory is that in a two party system, there needs to be the signals and differentiations because if you just say you're a Democrat, you could Mm. mean, I mean, you're aligning yourself with the party that held up the civil rights legislation Mm. for 20 years. So if we did have a multi-party system, there'd be people who could own their socialism and probably, I think there'd be a lot of different effects and there is a lot of political science about why in first past the post Mm -hmm. electoral systems, you almost always have a two-party system. But I do think that there'd be more people owning their socialism. Mm. And I think it would be kind of functional because you have all these people with all these all these nebulous definitions and you don't not only do you not know what they stand for they don't know exactly yeah, what they true. stand for i mean someone like aoc in europe in europe we would simply call her a social democrat yeah like a real social proper social democrat right and and there'd be no and that would have no pejorative connotation no no that's like perfectly mainstream yes um, I want to ask you about the tucker carlson thing because i've been invited on some fox shows and i always said to myself if I don't have a tape of it, I give up to them the right to edit me however they want. And also just, you know, if I if I have a great interview, they're just going to spike it, which mm-hmm. would have happened with you. So did you know that going in and that's why you taped it from the control room? No, 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 no. It was actually, it was just a big joke, to be honest. So uh, a British author who's a friend of mine got me invited. And I, I, I didn't really know Tucker Carlson, to be honest. Yeah, I'd never. Lucky you. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I've watched a lot of Fox, but and I've seen seen a couple of his shows. But I, you know, he's not a famous figure for me. Um, so then on the Friday before this interview, uh, I, I was having drinks with a couple of friends in Holland, and we were sort of brainstorming, like, what, what would you like to say to Tucker Carlson? So a friend of mine came up with this, uh, with this idea of calling him a millionaire funded by billionaires. And I was yeah. like, yeah, that's funny. So I wrote, <laughs> you know, I put that in my notes on my iPhone. And you got to imagine, it was 2 a.m. Uh, in the night yeah. uh, in Amsterdam, six hours later. Uh, so I drove over there, and I said to the producer, we were there in a, you know, a totally empty studio, the, 
I mean, it was a quiet city. And uh, I, was, I was saying to him, like, uh, I'm going to throw a hand grenade in there. <laughs> uh, can you record it? And he said, no, I don't have the equipment for that here. I said, no, no problem. Uh, it's just so that I can show my friends that I actually caught Tucker Carlson, a millionaire funded by billionaires. That, you pretty much that was figured- my idea. Oh, I, wait, I needed so- proof for my friends. And you, okay, so you <laughs> thought it would go out on the air. And yeah. you thought, but you have yeah, no way to watch Fox. I wasn't, in I wasn't sure. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. And then I did the interview, and then this guy came walking into the room and said, "You know what? I recorded it all with my iPhone." I said, "Holy shit!" Drinking. Who was that guy? Uh, yeah, just from the studio. Yeah, oh, okay. Just a, fr- just a freelance guy who was yeah. there for the uh, for that interview. And uh, yeah. then then finally, I looked at the video on my on my, on my iPhone. I was like, "Holy shit!" I. I I've got this bomb on my on my phone, and you're all like, "Oh, I'm against the globalist elite, blah blah blah." Uh, it's not very convincing, to be honest. Why don't you go yourself, you tiny brain? And I hope this gets picked up because you're a moron. I tried to give you a hearing, but you were too annoying for me. You can't handle the criticism, can you? So yeah, the next day I was like, "Okay, what are we going to do with this?" And when did the Carlson people tell you that that interview wasn't running? Um, they didn't. They never told me. So, so it yeah, just never aired. It never aired. And then I did get one email from from a producer who sort of gave me a quote from Tucker, in which he called me an asshole once more. Yeah. Oh, so that's that was good. wonderful. That was nice of him. I still yeah. should frame that email and, and put it up. Uh, <laughs> that you should pin that tweet is yeah. what you should do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Rutger Bregman is the author of Utopia for Realists and the Correspondent, which is his Dutch. Journal of Ideas that's online will soon to be an English language journal of ideas. Thank you so much. Good to meet you, Rucker. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. When the Prime Minister of New Zealand... Jacinda Ardern vowed to reform her country's gun laws. Americans were struck when she did announce an agreement within the cabinet to actually reform the gun laws. Americans were floored. It seems so simple and sensible and impossible for a leader to say. This ultimately means that within 10 days of this horrific act of terrorism, we will have announced reforms which will, I believe, make our community safer. Wow. Is New Zealand better, nicer, kinder, more functional than the U.S.? Maybe. But it's also smaller and more homogenous. Though the events in New Zealand were tragic, it is nice to live in a country of four and a half million people who can come together after a tragedy. Of course, Connecticut's a state of three and a half million people, and they came together pretty well after their tragedy. Plus, New Zealand does not have the right of gun ownership literally written into its constitution, which, no matter how you interpret the Second Amendment, certainly is a complication in broad reform. Another difference between the U.S. and New Zealand is that the gun culture of New Zealand is not as steeped in its foundation myths as is the gun culture of the U.S., When a U.S. politician says the following, he or she usually draws disbelief. In fact, I strongly believe that the vast majority of gun owners in New Zealand will agree with the sentiment that change needs to occur. I, in fact, believe that they will be with us. Now, I'm generally suspicious of states' rights arguments, and I do believe that a house divided against itself cannot stand. But I also think that an underrated aspect of our American democracy, underrated in terms of what makes it so undemocratic seeming, is this. 
the sheer size of the demos. The most functional countries, as rated by outlets like The Economist and their Democracy Index, are places like New Zealand, or in fact, New Zealand, which came in fourth after Norway, Iceland, and Sweden for being the best democracies. Now, if you go down that list, you also get Denmark, Ireland, Canada, Finland, Australia, Switzerland, the Netherlands. I just named the top 11. Every one of those countries is smaller than a U.S. state, California, except in Canada, All of the countries named are less populous than California, Texas, Florida, and New York. And it's worth noting that all are less heterogeneous. For all of our poorly thought out and implemented systems of governance, for the bad faith on the right, for the hyper-religiosity driving our values, accounting for the legacy of slavery and the poor public education system, taking all of those things into account it really can't be overstated just how much size matters and conspires to get in the way of progress here in America. Democracy is a compact by which you, the individual, gives over some of your rights and powers to the collective. When that collective is immense and from vastly divergent cultures, you're going to get policy preferences and values that are far apart from your own. So I'm an urban-dwelling New Yorker. I am, to some degree, making a deal where I allow the opinions of a rural Alabaman to dictate some of the choices that I have, some of the rules that I live by, and it's vice versa also. That is part of living in the democracy that we live in. All of those people have a voice. And yes, ours is a flawed system without the very best way of harnessing all the voices. We also have a purposeful tendency to amplify some voices over others. But let's not ignore the fact that our voices are diverse and wide, and that's not always a good thing, especially if you think you're right, which most of us do. We have 330 million people in our democracy, and we expect it to work equally well for a secular, college-educated Brooklynite who works in media, for an auto body repairman who lives in the barrio, for a homeschooled rural resident who is taught that evolution is a hoax. We all get one vote each, even those of us who have a degree in political science. I wouldn't tell you which type of rifle you should use to shoot a squirrel, yet you get the same number of votes as I do unless you're a rural county, as in Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, or a swing state, then your presidential vote counts at all, whereas mine is essentially ignored. But I don't blame America for any of this. We started this modern experiment in democracy. We were bound to get some things wrong. We were the bleeding edge, as the saying goes. New Zealand essentially wrote its constitution in 1986. They had the benefit of some of our mistakes. It's nice to have a shared system of beliefs and values, and I think America does, but the definition of those things can't be terribly specific in a country this large. Perhaps consensus was easier in the age of supposed monoculture, before everyone became a brand, before all information was siloed, but America just keeps growing in size as our niches keep atomizing. And so what happens is that inertia becomes less and less possible to overcome. I don't think it's a death sentence for America. I'm just trying to describe why things seem so difficult to change and why it's such a frustrating exercise to compare ourselves to smaller countries that can sensibly come together when circumstances demand it. On the plus side, our enormity and our strength do mean that when we get something right, even a little right, the benefits to us and to the world can be enormous. We're like a huge conglomerate 
that might have a profit margin of only one or two percent, but we make up for it in volume. Then again, when we get it wrong, even when we get it a little wrong, even when the question is tough, it reverberates far and wide. I was thinking of the Arab Spring. It really was a tough call to decide who to back, who to topple, who to support in the name of stability, who to oppose in the name of freedom. And the U.S. probably misstepped along the lines. That just has such greater consequence than anything Sweden, Norway, Iceland, and New Zealand can do. The way I think about this is to not get frustrated or depressed. The U.S. is still on balance, more democratic than not, more wise than foolish, more liable to elect admirable leaders than buffoons. It might not seem like it now, but I still do think this is true. And this is the upside to sharing your democracy, which means ceding some of your individual power to some of those 330 million other people. On occasion, we do get the big things right. And when we do, we can't help but shaping the world, if ever so slightly, for the better. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who are pioneering tax-free municipal bonds, which would pay the rock to appear in Towering Inferno 2. This is just good governance, people. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, once hit a $10,000 Kino prize at a Native American casino, thus immiserating another generation of Cherokee children. So it had a downside. The gist. If this presidency thing doesn't work out for Beto, I think I can get him a prime shift on the Ames branch of Coyote Ugly. Oomperoodepperoodooperoo, and thanks for listening. I mean, you're probably not going to air this, uh, but I went to Davos to speak truth to power, and I'm doing exactly the same thing right now. You might not like it, but you're a millionaire funded by billionaires, and that's the reason why you're not talking about these issues.